Hello, friends. Welcome to Silo Busting. I'm your host, Allison Coden, an interaction designer at EPAM Continuum. I bake a loaf of bread every week. Sometimes it's whole wheat, sometimes it's bagels. I want to be clear that I've been bread baking since long before COVID made it cool. But like everyone else, I suffered acutely during the great flour and yeast shortage of March 2020. Much as I want to blame the barren grocery store shelves on people taking up artisanal bread as a COVID-era hobby, the story of why society briefly ran out of baking basics is a lot bigger and more complicated than that. As you measure out your yeast and high-gluten flour, do you wonder about where these things come from? I mean, obviously the grocery store, but before that? How does flour make it from farms to our stores? And what happens when a pandemic disrupts that supply chain? It turns out that the answers to these questions may be a matter of survival in today's COVID-inflected marketplace. After all, Napoleon's campaign in Russia famously collapsed when his supply chains failed. That's a history lesson we should all contemplate as we wait for our next baguette to rise. To bring flour back to hipster bakers like myself, to keep commerce and manufacturing moving, is a matter not only of supplies, but of people and software. COVID's disruptions have forced businesses from Walmart to your corner store to rethink their supply chain strategy, even in some cases to truly understand their sources of supply for the first time. This is a matter of urgency, since if we're smart, lessons we've learned in the last six months about supply chain resiliency will influence how these systems are designed far into the future. Jit Agarwal, VP of Enterprise Products, and Dennis Grishin, VP and Supply Chain Practice Leader, are here to tell us what, the, what we need to know about supply chain disruption and resiliency with our own Ken Gordon. It's, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today, and I'm really excited to talk about supply chains with you. So in the past few months, supply chains have been snapping, so to speak, but this, this didn't just happen overnight. Can we talk a little bit about the history of modern supply chains and how COVID changed our relationship to them? Jit, you want to start me off here? Sure. Can do, Ken. Thank you, by the way. It's great to join you on another podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, it, it, you're absolutely right. I, I think if you if you look at look back at supply chains historically over time, you know, in the in the 70s and 80s, we saw the supply chains start to become more and more streamlined, more and more responsive, uh, adaptive, agile, if you will. The concept was JIT, just-in-time supply chains. And we really, in the States, in the US, we really took that as almost as a page out of the book of some of the larger, more successful efforts in Japan and other countries in the APAC region, where they had these really amazingly efficient and uh, a very agile supply chains. So we really started to do that here in the in the states in the 80s and 90s, and then that that trend just continued on and on because of the amazing abilities to drive efficiencies in supply chains, which then meant lower costs, uh, more profits, more success for the businesses. But then, like every good thing, you can perhaps take it to an uh, an a long extreme or a large extreme, and I think that may be perhaps what's happened with our supply chains over time, the last 40 years or so, where they've become so efficient, so hyper-efficient, um, that they've become very strung out, very long, very complicated, very convoluted, and very, very diverse, large geographic footprints, not just in any country or any continent, but across the globe. And subsequently, when you have an event like the pandemic, that's when those supply chains become incredibly stressed and incredibly, the fragility of them becomes incredibly obvious which in hindsight, of course, there was that that level of fragility. But when everything is a well-run machinery and they've got the gears all greased and everything's working, you may not notice that you have these these fragile links. But when when you have a pandemic event, when pretty much the 
all of those well-greased systems have come to a screeching halt is when you realize, uh-oh, maybe something is broken. Dennis, do you want to add to that? Certainly. Uh, thanks, Chit. Uh, I mean, exactly. I mean, I agree exactly with what you said. I think what I would color at color to this is to say that over those 40 years, um, the name of the game was productivity, right? Productivity year to year, quarter to quarter, improvement in cost, you know, cost reduction, right? And an improvement in um, reduction lead times and, and generally kind of single threading the supply chains. Uh, and, and that worked fine, right? Assuming that the range of volatility and volatility is always present in the market and in, in the demand and the supply side of this. But the range of those volatilities were sort of normal, right? Normally distributed and fairly narrow. And in those circumstances, that worked fine, right, for us. We've achieved a lot of efficiencies. We drove down the cost of uh, products that have been delivered to the, to the customers. But now what's happened with COVID-19 is, is really in a, a black swan event, essentially. The range of volatility has changed dramatically. The underlying factors have changed dramatically. So that efficiency did us a disservice in, in this scenario because we did not have the backup plans. We did not have the alternatives. We did not have the, um, the resiliency to, to recover quickly or to even, uh, to even address the, the ongoing challenges, right? So a lot of our customers um, right now and in the last few months and we're still right now are essentially underwater with just firefighting. You know, they don't know how to deal with that volatility and uncertainty that's that's hitting them and they're just firefighting. So so that's what we're going to talk about, I guess, further down in this uh, podcast about how to solve that. Right, right. Now, JIT, you've said when it comes to redesigning these supply chains that it has to happen in, in, in three areas, the short term, the midterm, and the long term. In the short term, you tell us, orgs need to cultivate an awareness of the components of their supply chains. And Dennis, I would ask you, how might companies go about uh, cultivating this kind of awareness? What, what would you suggest they do? So, so it's not an easy task. I'll, I'll be very honest, right? Reality is that many companies do not have a, a good visibility and aware, awareness of all the different players in the ecosystem that they are operating with. It starts from the uh, the supplier network, right? The suppliers are typically a multi-tier type ecosystem. It's the suppliers that supply to, to me, but there are suppliers that supply to my supplier and then so on and so forth going upstream. Uh, same is happening on the downstream side, which is it's a distributor that serves a customer that serves a shop and consumer, right? This, the visibility for a particular, from the particular enterprise point of view through the tiers of the uh, upstream and downstream is non-existent. To reconstruct that, um, you may take years, may take a year of, you know, dozens of resources trying to piece together all the different linkages and, and flows of material and financial flows and flow of people and so on and information. So that's not an easy task, but where I would start, where I would start, and, th and that's an exercise that's done by some of the companies is, is try to build a visual representation. And there are tools that help with that. Um, try to build a visual representation of all your starting with the physical assets, right? So the manufacturing sites, the distribution sites, the end consumption points, the supplier sites. If you have visibility to 
to suppliers of suppliers, please add that to the to the picture. Um, use tools like, for instance, LamaSoft, right, which allows you to visualize it and put parameters and constraints into this picture. So start with building out that 80% accurate view from the enterprise point of view and extending beyond the enterprise walls, right? Um, and keep on enriching that as, as you go along and keep it up to date. That's one of the key things, right? It's often a one-time exercise, which is then after the, excess, the the optimization is done and some decisions made is left off. And and then the the accuracy and, and concurrency of the data gets lost and you have to repeat it again. So once you build it, keep it up to date. How often would you have to update it, do you think, Dennis? I think you have to uh, repeat this exercise. In the past, I would say it would be, uh, you know, every six months to 12 months exercise, right? Tactically and more strategically, perhaps every two to three years. But given how quickly the situation is is changing now, I would say it's a quarterly. It's a quarterly and maybe even ongoing because because the networks are reshaping right now. Yeah, I was just going to add there, Ken. I think it, it's almost like enterprises need to take this on as an audit exercise as they do with their financials and the hygiene and the maintenance that they would maintain for their financials or their customers uh, or other critical business areas. They need to treat their supply chains with an equal level of uh, fidelity and care because ultimately it's their supply chains that enable them to to get that uh, product to the customer, the the solution that the customers are paying for. So, you know, think about how carefully organizations manage their finances and how much of a of a due diligence is done to ensure that their robust numbers reported to the street. And the same is also true for for customers and the care and feeding of customers. Uh, I think you know perhaps there isn't as much done in this area as there should be. Because ultimately, this is is similarly aligned for the enterprise. It's the lifeblood of your business. Perhaps you may or may not realize it, but your ability to deliver those products to customers is critical. So I would almost say that you want to add this as a, an element of your audit regime that you do for your financials and your customers, and then add supply chain to that list. Yeah, I would I would just want to add something on top here because we've we've talked here a lot about physical assets, right? It's those elements of supply chain that enable physical flow of products and so on. We should not forget about the other two components, and there may be others, but it's people and it's digital, right? Uh, especially right. now, right? You know, people's safety, their ability to operate the, the, the equipment, their ability to operate the plant, participate in warehouse activities, even the headquarters. All of that is inhibited, right, because of C19. So you should not ever forget about the people actually running that supply chain, not just the machines, right? So that's critical to, to inventory that. And that inventory comes not only in the form of, well, how many people I have here or there, right? But it's also what kind of skills they have, right? How can redeploy them? Are they, uh, can they do different type of activity, perform different type of activities as, as situation changes, right? Uh, do they, and then on the digital side of things is, do they have the tools? Do I have the data? Is it accurate that enables me to make decisions? So we got to keep in mind that there are three components, at least the physical assets, the people and the digital. Awesome. Awesome. Now, Jit, you've written that agility is really important here. You've said that we should uh, focus on demand forecasting for the short term and medium term for customers. Can you guys break down what demand forecasting is so our listeners can get a sense of how it works right now in the field? 
Sure. Um, maybe maybe I take that, Dennis, and you can add on top. Um, so if you think about demand forecasting, it's really understanding what your customer set is asking for or from your organization, whether it's demand for your products or services or whatever else you may have in, may have in the marketplace. And this comes, the demand forecasting really comes as a result of what your sales activity uh, with your sales organization and your go-to-market activity to then give you a, a forecast of, okay, here's what we think we're going to sell of the various services or products we have in the market. And the complexity, the reason why the demand forecast is so complicated right now is the pandemic has resulted in various forms of lockdowns and various forms of disruptions to the business, the normal course of business or BAU, business as usual. And as a result, whatever the forecast might have been uh, may need to be, will need to be, you know, re-examined and, and potentially recalibrated because you may find that uh, the demand that you were expecting to have is very different. Give you an example in retail, uh, obviously with the pandemic, with the lockdown, a lot of retail organizations were forced to shut down their stores and saw a, a dramatic increase. Um, I think in fact, Target announced with their last quarterly financials, a 50% increase in online shopping, right? And so now a different channel that might not have been forecasted for demand to be that big is all is surprisingly huge, and now you've got to pivot and 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 uh, adapt your supply chain to respond to this kind of market demand, this demand forecast. So the reason I'm saying that in the short term during the pandemic, the supply chain demand forecasting is so critical is the need to pivot and adapt to the changes that are happening as a result of real time changes in the marketplace. Dennis, thanks, thanks, Jed. Absolutely, and I and I would say. We need to um, draw a line here in, between the forecasting and planning. I think that that's critical, right? Forecasting is ultimately um, an, an inexact science, right? The, the forecast is always wrong. The reality always is something else. So I, I think it's important to draw a, a boundary between your, your short-term and your long-term. In your short-term horizon to midterm, you are forecasting. You formulated the plan, you're executing, but then... You know, you're trying to guess what's happening. Uh, in the long term, you really have to be more of a master of your own destiny, right? You have to take specific actions to 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 shape the demand, to shape the marketplace. That includes promotions. It includes new product introductions, pricing, you know, deployment and 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 activation. All those things. Um, in the short term, you're forecasting, and as as you are forecasting now. Um, What's important is to to be clear on what is forecastable and what's not forecastable, right? That what to accomplish that you need, you need to do very rigorous segmentation and, and uh, continuously to decide which of your um, parts of your product portfolio are have low volatility and high volume. For instance, they carry your business, they're critical for your growth, things like that. Those parts of the portfolio you treat differently than those that are low volume, for instance, and high volatility, and they're not critical. You may just put a replenishment on it and don't have a forecast. So so you have to be um, you know, differentiated in how you treat different parts of the portfolio in different horizons. Absolutely. Now, let's switch for a little bit to the midterm and talk about streamlining. How, guys, are clients out there zeroing in on their manufacturing and production and distribution process to streamline their operations. What are these? What are you guys seeing out there right now in companies, clients? Here's the streamlining part of it. It's it's interesting, right? Um, 
as I mentioned before, right, the, the whole productivity and efficiency game has led us to be sort of streamlined in a, in a sense that we are single threaded, right? There is one supplier and we've consolidated all the, all the volume through that one supplier and then we achieved the economies of scale and the lowest cost and all that, which is great. But now the, the supplier just happened to be in a province in China that is you know, locked down. And so you don't have an alternative that you can easily switch to. So, so streamlining means different thing now than I think it meant um, uh, before. Right. Um, so what I would say is relevant here from streamlining point of view is going back to my previous comment, um, figure out what's important to your business. Uh, what, are the, what are the products and the services that you bring to market that really carry your business? Streamline it from the point of view of simplifying your portfolio. Uh, to to where the it's customer centric it addresses the current customer need and, and hopefully the future customer need try to cut out the complexity that's not really contributive or, or um, additive to your business so from that point of view that's the that's the streamlining I would I would um, uh, try to address and to add on to what Dennis just said because that's that's very brilliant think about streamlining from removing complexity. Um, also potentially from removing SKUs, right? In a, in a prior world scenario, you might have sold lots of different configurations and variations of your product packaged in multiple different ways for multiple different channels and markets and segments. And subsequently now, you may decide that in the interest of increasing your volume, you reduce the number of SKUs and simplify it because you might have required a specific capability from a partner or, a, or a, someone in your supply chain in order to offer those multiple variations. And instead, to Dennis's point, if you simplify your set of products and your SKUs, you can now reduce the complexity involved and, and achieve that streamlined approach. And don't forget, with this, with this world and this, this, this kind of pandemic phenomenon of lockdown and people working from remote, you now also have to think of streamlining, not just for your supply chain of physical goods, as Dennis pointed out, but also your people. So how do you now streamline your communication, streamline your ability for your organization, your supply chain experts and, and, and those operating them to really successfully work with you in this new normal? And then how do you also have the digital support in that kind of remote access hybrid environment. So streamlining, uh, removing complexity, streamlining, thinking about what it means for your people and what it also means from your digital platforms to support you in this new time. Another example, or maybe a last one, is if you look at some of the challenges that face the supply chain as people um, you know, really started to hoard goods in the early ages, early stages of the pandemic, you could see that manufacturers perhaps had the ability to produce more, you know, for example, toilet paper rolls or paper towels, but the packaging line for consumer was much smaller than, say, commercial. And subsequently, there was a whole shift of streamlining their SKU set and moving it to, to more consumer uh, as opposed to commercial since the restaurants and other commercial customers of their products might have been locked down. So that's an, a, a very good example of how companies want to re rethink streamlining during the pandemic times. That's cool. I, 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 Jit, you've written about the importance of uh, partnerships and co-teaming models uh, to sort of enable flexible and efficient new logistical channel, channels for businesses. Do you see that sort of the partnerships that have come out uh, of the pandemic, are they qualitatively different from the partnerships beforehand? And if so, how? 
I would say so, Ken. And I and I'm gonna use what Dennis said because I think he's absolutely right. The part of the need that's driven these new partnerships is based on the fact that optimization of supply chains over 40 years often led to these single-threaded relationships, which works great when you have a free flow of capital goods and services without a pandemic. But in a pandemic, you're now suddenly caught without an alternative supplier or source. And so a lot of the partnerships have been almost forced on the market as a result of the need to satisfy demand and the inability to do so with a far-flung supplier network. So I think one aspect of partnerships that have changed is, is companies are looking for, A, alternative partners that they can get products and services from, so they're not so single-threaded anymore. B, perhaps looking at partners in different geographical proximity to themselves. Um, maybe they don't need to supply something from uh, a continent across the, the globe, and instead they can find something more regionally or locally. And then the last thing is suppliers are, are partners or supply chains are looking for partners that can really be multifaceted, provide them with more than one individual skill, capability, solution, part, or widget, because the more dexterous your partners are, the more agile they are, the more they're going to be able to respond to your changing conditions, market changing conditions, because what we have seen over the last six months likely is not what we're going to see over the next six months. And so you want to stay ahead of the curve uh, in, in every way possible. And subsequently, your partnerships are evolving to do that as well, to bear in mind how your partners can enable you to stay ahead of the curve as the you continue to evolve and respond to the pandemic. Dennis, your thoughts? Sure. No, uh, Jid, I think that's exactly right. I will, I will add another example of partnership, right? to this, um, you know, the 3PL providers and in, in logistics specifically, the 3PL providers and in, even 4PL providers is not a new, uh, is not a new concept. Uh, wh what do they do, right? They aggregate um, demand for, uh, for logistics services, right? And, and then they distribute it across a network of logistics providers who the, the, the specific, you know, carriers, let's say, right? Um, so, this new and renewed partnership, uh, where it brings value, right? It's um, ability to be part of a broader network than just your own sort of enterprise is where the value comes from, right? The 3PL or 4PL provider has visibility using technologies in the cloud, using multi-tenant um, uh, solutions. They have visibility to a much broader set of uh, demand and supply in the market. And they can optimize that much, much more, um, uh, much better than if they were just doing it for one enterprise. So inherently then you are potentially as an enterprise, a company shipping from point A to point B, you're finding partners uh, in very unexpected places. It may be a, it may be a, a complementary other company that also ships on the same route, but they ship, they ship in a different direction. So now you eliminate backhauls and you reduced overall or you improve the efficiency overall. It could even be the competitor uh, in the certain product lines that you're combining uh, goods on one truck. You know, there's all kinds of combinations possible uh, when you are, uh, you know, partnering with the company that has a broader visibility in, in the market. Cool. Now, finally, let's talk about the long term and, and, uh, and a concept that you've, you've written about quite a bit before is the uh, idea of the future proofing teams which you say act as a kind of nerve center that uh, 
act as a singular body, informed, as you say, by the latest market and consumer data, empowered to resolve any intra-organizational disagreements, to streamline decision-making. It's easy enough, I think, to write this, but it might be hard to actually implement a future-proofing team. Dennis, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with such teams, or JIT, either of you? I'd like to hear about how these things work in the real world. Sure. I mean, I can start. And, and um, so future proofing, right? Um, now we all have, we're all under influence of this and still in the midst of uh, what's happening with the global pandemic and the impact right. it has on the markets and, you know, supply chain. So, and by the way, statistics says that 70% of more than two thirds of supply chains or enterprises do not really have robust uh, contingency plans or business continuity plans, and for for the situation like we're observing, right? So, 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 what does you know future proofing mean, right? In in it means three things. It means having visibility uh, to what's happening, better visibility and greater visibility deeper into overall supply chain to to get better signals of what's happening. That that's that's number one, right? Um, Number two, it means having a process, a, a discipline and a process and a team in place to manage risk, to, uh, to, to, uh, to understand what the risks are, to quantify them, to develop um, you know, actionable response strategies, and then uh, you know, present it to the leadership and, and, and have it on the books, right? And update them as needed. So that's two, right? And three is ability to act, ability to be flexible, Ability to reallocate resources is needed. Uh, resources meaning people, physical assets, and digital assets, and so on, and make and and make decisions quickly, right? So those three things: visibility, uh, risk management capability, and, and ability to make decisions. Those are the three things that I would focus on right now. How about you, Jit? You know, if we're uh, if we're thinking about long term and and what do organizations really need to do to future proof themselves, um, I, I think I would agree absolutely with what Dennis said. I would add a couple of other things. You and we had talked about this, touched on this a little bit earlier. You you want to try to understand where and what your market demands are doing, and that's why I say having data and access to the to the to the current demand forecast and and what you're able to execute against is critical and then you want to augment that by the partnerships to help you deliver because ultimately what you have to remember is the changes that we've experienced um, are not necessarily going to be the changes we'll experience moving forward markets might shut down might reopen new markets might open we might have a vaccine that shows up you know in one quarter or two or whatnot so given all of that, to future-proof, the, the value of the nerve center and the idea behind that concept is a rapid response capability based on the data, based on the information, based on your network and what you can do. It's to create that, that speed to market so you're able to, to respond quickly and not go through multiple layers of approvals and reviews. You bring together that multidisciplinary team, which can incorporate folks from the product and from the manufacturing and from the sales and all of those, those groups of people so that you can be very, very agile in your response. And I think that's the ultimate future proofing that you can do, which is, as Dennis was saying, 
you can't necessarily whip out a crystal ball and predict the future, but what you can do is equip yourself so that when the future arrives, you're ready, able, and, and willing to respond to it with the best foot forward your organization can put. Yeah. That's good. I was just if, about if, to ask. Oh, I was going to. I was. I was going to add just a couple of things on top of what uh, Jit was saying, as far as the team, right? That would would drive that. Um, there is a cultural aspect that needs to be reinforced, I guess, right? They they have been cross-functional teams um, for for a while now. The problem has always been the the trust, the cohesion, and 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 kind of alignment of the goals for different team members from different functions. Quite often, they they were part of the same team, but still operated in very siloed fashion, right? Ability to bring them together to set a goal or uh, objectives and metrics for them that are bring, driving further cohesion in this team and also increase the trust that that's that's an important part for making the team like that really effective and and and, and delivering what's expected well that's fantastic guys i want to wonder what do you think are going to be the challenges in six months or a year from now for supply chains do you see things uh, being radically different than they are now. I mean, can you? I know we said it's very hard to predict the future, but we've had some time now to sort of rethink um, what supply chains are. Do you think organizations will get it together over the next six months and move on to a different stage, or will be permanently in the sort of stage we are right now? Dennis, do you want to start, or do you want me to go? Sure, I can. I can start. Um, I mean, I, I believe that they will get it together. Uh, we, we're seeing, um, well, there are two things, right? One is, yes, everyone has been underwater, just trying to fight fires and trying to enable or to find new suppliers or to get product to the market and all that, right? But nevertheless, we're dealing with leaders in the industry, and, and they all have been investing in in making their uh, supply chains more resilient and more sustainable. So examples of that that I'm seeing in the market are uh, our clients approach us with the request to help them build out the control tower capability, right? Control tower is one of the enabling, uh, you know, uh, factors or, or assets to enable that cross-functional team, right? To have the data at their fingertips accurate, um, uh, you know, comprehensive, uh, allow them to make decisions and so on, right? So companies are really, you know, focusing on this now. Uh, the other the other topic we discussed before, forecasting. And forecasting is now taking a shape of allocating because demand is constrained, but nevertheless, we are engaged in across multiple customers and building new machine learning enabled forecasting and allocation, um, you know, tools uh, that will help them become more resilient and predictive. Uh, the third example, last and third example I'll, I'll bring is there's a number of requests we are addressing now related to mapping out the supply chains, uh, creating a tool that gives the visual representation of multi-tier network of suppliers and customers and, and keep it updated. So there is clearly an investment that is being made into building a sustainable future-proof capabilities. So can I, I'm going to add what Dennis said here. I, I agree with them 100%. Um, you know, there's the adage, the only constant is change. <laughs> and I think this pandemic has, has certainly proven that. So with the, with a reasonably high degree of confidence, I can say that the supply chains of today and the supply chains of six or 12 months from now will be different for sure. How much different, how far different, how more agile and adaptive really depends, as Dennis was saying, on the industry, the use case, the example 
right, that control tower or nerve center for every organization will be different. The data that it sees and subsequently the responses that organizations make to their supply chains will be different. So it's for sure that they'll be different. Um, you might have certain industries that are incredibly more adaptive and responsive because they can be, and you have others that, you know, for various reasons are, are not going to be able to, right? Um, one quick example is, is paper towels, right? It's been six months since the advent, and there's still a, a, a relatively high chronic shortage of, of paper towels. One would think that that could readily be resolved, but in actuality, it's not that easy. It's a lot harder to spin up new paper towel making machines and supply chain capabilities than one might think. Um, and even though there's an increase in demand of, you know, 20, 25% versus pre-pandemic. So at the end of the day, it, it really means that things will be different. They'll continue to be different. And the best course of action for the company to future-proof itself, set up that control tower to be your nerve center, pull in the data, and use that to continually adapt and revisit, audit yourself on a regular basis so that you know what your supply chain is doing, and then just be dynamically responsive to market demands and market needs. Fantastic, guys. This has been a, a very educational conversation. I appreciate you taking the time, Dennis. It was very good chatting with you. And Jid, I think from now on, I'm going to have to call you Mr. Just-in-Time. So I, think... <laughs> I was going to say. That's awesome. Thanks a lot. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. This has been Silo Busting, a podcast from EPAM Continuum. EPAM Continuum integrates business experience and technology consulting focused on accelerating breakthrough ideas into meaningful impact. Why do we do this? Because real opportunities aren't siloed. Thanks to Dennis Grishin and Jit Agarwal for a great conversation. Cheers to Kip Palalas, our sound engineer extraordinaire, for getting this podcast recorded. Applause to Ken Gordon, our producer, for all his masterminding behind the scenes. I'm your host, Allison Coton, and I'm off to preheat the oven.